This is a HeadGum Podcast. While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. can hear is you making mouth noises and it's driving me crazy and i lose okay i blunk i blinked i lose i feel like we were doing an improv exercise where we were both apart both supposed to start saying the same words at the same time except mm-hmm. you weren't looking at me so i was making mouth noises at you in the hopes that our mouths would line up I felt like we were doing an improv exercise where we were supposed to yes and each other, but neither of us would say anything to yes and. Those are the worst improv shows. I hate it when I go and see improv shows where a bunch of people just stand there silently. Mm-hmm. John Cage does improv. Get it? Welcome to Overdue. This is a podcast about the books that you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. My name is Andrew. And I get what John Cage is doing. Doesn't mean I have to like it. Doesn't mean I have to like it. I'm sort of here for that that thing that's like playing on an organ in Central Europe that's going to take like 2,000 years. Like, I'm here for that. Sure. I'm I mean, less... if, if the people who are maintaining that have my level of patience with John Cage, I don't think they're going to make it to the end, but... <laughs> No, I think they're... We'll see about that. I think they have a little bit more patience than that. This... Mm-hmm show that we do is not about 20 it's 20th century music it's about books yes from any century this one happens to be from the 20th century it it does we're in the throes of spooktober and um we're getting spooked week by week guys look behind you there's a ghost i don't mean to scare you but there's a ghost behind you i just looked behind me and my Uh, closet is open yeah, it, a ghost did that. Well, it reminded me of one of the recent times where I have like legit been spooked. We're going to be talking about The Haunting of Hill House by Shirley Jackson this week. Buckle up. Mm-hmm. This is relevant, sort of. Um, in the last <laughs> apartment I lived in, I woke up in the middle of the night. I might have told this story on the podcast before. I didn't have, I didn't have my glasses on. And the way that our bed was set up, like my... My general sleeping layout faced the closet, like what, just just the way that I was. And I you could've... slept facing the closet. Yeah, I could have said Is that, that a I... human way of <laughs> saying the thing that you just said. Yes. It okay. Is. <laughs> and I... I slept in normal human fashion with my orientation in the direction of the closet. Yeah. The closet was facing my eye parts, and <laughs> I didn't have my glasses on, and I woke up in the middle of the night, and there was just enough light in the room for it to be creepy, and the closet door was open, and something in the closet was arranged in such a way as to look like a person. Okay. like, And of course, like closets are full of jackets and things, and so like that's not hard for your brain to like pattern match those things into terror, but I was... <laughs> I was spooked. I was really upset for a little bit there because I thought there was a person in our closet. What did you do? Did you just get up and shut the closet? I Well, I laid there terrified for way longer than I should. Uh-huh. And then I think I, I think I got up and I think I shut the closet. I've thought a few times about getting those little like those little bats that you get to combat home invaders. Oh, I feel oh. like that would that would make me that would make me feel better about like real and perceived threats if I had one of those close at hand. You mean like T-ball bats? I thought that you were in like a spooktober mode and you were going to get one of those like light up bats. Yeah, no. Like, did you know you just go on Amazon and you buy a jar of bats that you can throw <laughs> at an intruder? It works wonders. And it breaks and the bats just like go to town. Now that I'm sufficiently scared of my memories, Andrew, can you 
talk to me a little bit about Shirley Jackson, a an author we've talked about on the show before, like ages ago. Ages ago. So we did a combo episode where we did, what did we do? We did The Lottery Was One. Was it... It wasn't the yellow wallpaper. Was it the yellow wallpaper? No, because I read that one too. Hold on. Overdue Shirley Jackson. In real time, we're going to figure this out. In real time. Oh, it was the yellow wallpaper. Okay, I'm an idiot. Never mind. Okay. I must have read both those stories. (laughs) Sometimes when we do those split ones, like I'll read one and you read one. I feel like you might have read both of them, actually. Yeah, Yeah. okay. So, yeah, we we did the lottery, which is one of her most famous works back in, like, episode 53, I think. Whoa, we were just babes in the woods. Little podcast babies. We'd already been doing the show for, like, a year, though. Yeah, let's be honest. Like, maybe go back and pick up around there. Little podcast infants. Um, so we talked a little bit about Jackson then, because I think that is after we started doing author stuff. But we that was a long time ago, so we'll, <laughs> we'll hit some of the highlights here. Um, so to recap quickly, she was born in 1916, even though she claimed to have been born in 1919 to seem younger than her husband. Yep. She died in 1965 of heart failure in her sleep, possibly due to um, complications due to the medication she was taking. It wasn't for depression, but it was for like various neuroses mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and um, smoking and, and her weight. Um, and Haunting of Hill House is probably the, her second most famous thing after the lottery or possibly her first most famous thing, depending on the circles you run in. Yeah, it's been made um, into two feature films, both called The Haunting, one of which mm-hmm. is pretty faithful and in the 60s and is widely regarded. And then one that was made in the late 90s, I think, which everyone's like, that's garbage. So that sounds about right. It's based on when people if you just took like when people were making films called the haunting the 60s is probably better sure (laughs) um stephen king is one of the one of the people who sings the praises of this book he calls it one of the finest horror novels of the late 20th century um the wall street journal once called it the greatest haunted house story ever written Mm -hmm. and um so jackson she was uh she she wrote a lot um, she didn't fit in with kids at her school because she spent all her time writing. Um, she attended the University University of Rochester, but was not happy there and later transferred to Syracuse University, where she met her husband, Stanley Edgar Hyman, while she was working on the literary magazine there. Um, their marriage wasn't the happiest, I don't think. He was not faithful to her, but they never they never separated maybe they didn't just didn't have time to because she died relatively young but she did um hyman did write um about her like posthumously and helped helped publish a couple posthumous collections of yeah, her work right, as right. well and they were like really involved in the literary scene since he was a critic so like they would have parties where folks like Ralph Ellison were coming over and hanging out and stuff mm-hmm. like that they were living up in Vermont I think because he mm-hmm. taught at Bennington. Mm-hmm. Um, she in 1954 she like contributed a paragraph uh, about herself, which like summed it all up because she was relatively tight lipped about herself and about her work. Yeah, and her husband wrote about that, just saying before you read this paragraph mm-hmm. that she supplied about herself. Um, Hyman says of her, she consistently refused to be interviewed to explain or promote her work in any fashion or to take public stands and be the pundit of the Sunday supplements. She believed that her books would speak for her clearly enough over the years. And, you know, she was famous in her time, but she, I think, has become even more regarded as time has gone on. So I think that's that's that approach for her has mostly been vindicated. Sure. Right. I, I I think so. I think what I was reading uh, in the past couple of days as we're getting ready for the show is that like in the um, after she passed, there was like a period of time where as new authors kind of came in because she did not reach old age and did not kind of mature into her full career. I think there was a period of time where like newer authors were taking over and now the folks who then came in and were clearly influenced by her, like Stephen King and others have kind of gone back and like, no, you should probably go check this lady out. Um, But what she wrote was, I very much dislike writing about myself or my work. 
and when pressed for autobiographical material can only give a bare chronological outline which contains naturally no pertinent facts. I was born in San Francisco in 1919. Not true. Spent most of my early life in California. I was married in 1940 to Stanley Edgar Hyman, critic and numismatist, fan of coins. And we live in Vermont in a quiet rural community with fine scenery and comfortably far away from city life. Our major exports are books and children, both of which we produce in abundance. (laughs) The children are Lawrence, Joanne, Sarah, and Barry. My books include three novels, The Road Through the Wall, uh, Hangs a Man, The Bird's Nest, and a collection of short stories, The Lottery, Life Among the Savages is a disrespectful memoir of my children. <laughs> I like that even in a bio that she's supplying to 20th century authors, she's like kind of cheeky about her and her husband right. and is not taking herself seriously or at least poking fun in, in, in the same ways that other people might poke fun at her. So Sure. Did you ever go through a coin phase? Speaking of numismatists... For like coins, I can literally think of the moment in my neighbor's basement where someone was talking about coins, mm-hmm. and I declined to be interested. <laughs> <laughs> so that was a that was a path you could have gone down, but you decided not to. I am amazed at the vividness with which I am in Tony's basement, not interested in coins. <laughs> I can see the rug. I can see the drop ceiling, the unfinished adjacent basement. Like, I am there not taking an interest in coins. Not interested in coins. How about you? Um, For a while as a kid, I had, like, one of those cardboard sheets with the different little, um, not holes, but, like, the little cutouts in it where you could put different coins. And it was just a place to, like, place different american coins so like i had a steel penny from back in like world war ii when copper was scarce and they were making pennies out of steel that was pretty cool okay um and some silver dollars and stuff and this came back to me later when a few years ago Susanna worked at a bank and she had some guy who came in with like this big box full of old silver dollars from like the early 20th century and he was like just give me like give me money and give me cash in exchange for this and she was like dude these are probably worth more than a dollar now and he was like dude i don't like i don't care just okay. give me the money and so she in like she and this is it's going to sound like shady but it's totally not she bought the dollars from the bank because as far as the bank is concerned they're just worth a dollar like they're legal currency no way and so she bought all these old silver dollars from this guy who came in twice and um and ended up we ended up making like 5 or 600 bucks off of whoa off of like I forget how many, it was like 40 or $50 worth of silver dollars. That's pretty cool. It was pretty neat, yeah. I think the coolest coin I have, coolest in air quotes, is a silver <laughs> dollar that I got in elementary school mm-hmm. when the Acme near my house opened. Grand opening. We are down the road from Valley Forge Historical National Park. where George Washington stayed many crappy winters with his troops here in America. Mm -hmm. Revolutionary War. (laughs) Here in America. I'm aware that there are listeners that we have that are not in America, so I just try to toss that in when it's least appropriate. Sure. Otherwise, they would have no idea where George Washington would have been staying with his troops. Just saying. (laughs) Okay. I don't... And... Uh, there was a town crier in full revolutionary garb Ooh. in our Acme. Ringing, I think we should still have town crier. Yes, ri- it's called Twitter. Ringing a bell Ooh, nice. and proclaiming discounts throughout the land, <laughs> and like handing out silver dollars for the grand opening weekend. And Whoa. I, I think that silver dollar is still in my house today. I couldn't tell you where though. I think we should replace everybody who's spitting a sandwich board with a town crier. Oh, screw sandwich in, boards. Let's get tri-corner hats back. Who's instead telling you to go into Subway because <laughs> the turkey bacon ranch is truly a good, a revolutionary deal. That's what I need on the street. More people yelling. That's what I miss about cities. I need the, I need the street to more accurately reflect my Twitter feed, actually. That's true. Okay. Andrew, I want to talk about this book, but first, I think we should get yelled at by an ad. 
Okay. Hear ye, hear ye. Everybody, come one, come all, and listen to us proclaim the virtues of Squarespace. I think you... Come one, come all. Remind me I'm a little... Of a, got a little carnival barker in there. I was gonna say. <laughs> uh, it's overdue is brought to you... But what? That's not an accent. Is brought to you by it's brought to you by Squarespace. <laughs> Whether you need a landing page, a gallery, a beautiful gallery, a professional blog, <laughs> or an online store, it's all included with your Squarespace website. Hear ye, hear ye! It's easy. <laughs> what is this character? He's designing a website about town criers from indiscriminate parts of London. All right, great. Uh, Does your town crier character know that if you uh, pay for a year of Squarespace, you get a free custom domain and you get seamless commerce tools so you can easily sell stuff like Subway sandwiches or other merchandise that you might have? If you're selling, if you're reselling Subway sandwiches through your Squarespace site. That's not like what I would do, but that's fine. Or if you're reselling vintage silver dollars, (laughs) do it with Squarespace. You can start your free trial today. No credit card required at squarespace.com. If you decide to become a paying customer, use the offer code overdue to get 10% off your first purchase. We have been Squarespace users for our podcast entire life. We are very happy with them. Their support is very responsive. It's very easy to make a site and then just like forget about it and just you know, have it have it sit there and do its job competently and quietly for years and years. So um, Squarespace.com, offer code overdue, get 10% off your first purchase. Hear ye, hear ye. It's a great deal. Squarespace. Hear ye, hear ye. <laughs> So there's a Wall Street Journal article titled Chilling Fiction dot dot dot. Good. That's good headline. headline. Good headline. <laughs> um, and this I don't I hope the story isn't apocryphal because it's pretty good, um, even though I feel like their description of Shirley Jackson as a housewife is is typical, like a newspapery treatment of women. Like, you know how they do obituaries and they're like, oh, she was a dedicated mother of three and whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, one morning in the 1950s, a housewife in Vermont woke up, walked downstairs and found a note on her desk in her own handwriting. She didn't remember leaving it the night before. The message was simple and stark. Dead, dead. These cryptic words would have unsettled a lot of people, but not Shirley Jackson. She took them as a somnambulant inspiration and went on to compose what is now widely regarded as the greatest haunted house story ever written. I had no choice, she said. The ghosts were after me. Whoa. So that's what the Wall Street Journal's chilling fiction dot 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 article says was the seed that grew into Haunting of Hill House. That's pretty cool. What's the coolest note that Sleep Andrew's ever left regular Andrew? Boy, he's never left any notes. Only only actions. (laughs) (laughs) I will will beg no further questions. Um, (laughs) Yeah, Haunting of Hill House, published in 1959. There's, I couldn't find much, I don't know if you found anything, if not as cool, about like it's publication history. It does, you know, she was a respected author by the time that it came out. It's not like one of those. Some of the novels that we've talked about are like first or second novels where the author had to fight to make them happen. Yeah, and I don't think like I think the story here was probably pretty boring. Like established author sends manuscript to her editor and it gets published. <laughs> it's just it's funny. Just nobody ever talks about those stories, Andrew. So you have to balance, etc. Um. So the book is this interesting mid-20th century revisit of the gothic, like, horror ghost story that we've covered once or twice before. Well, in some ways, um, The Woman in Black was kind of a revisiting of the same same stuff. Mm -hmm. So I'm sensing a theme. Oh, oh, is it? Hmm, I wonder what month Mm, it is. I Uh, wonder if the... (laughs) 
if the like terror of the purple peanut butter or whatever goosebumps book we're gonna read is a revisiting of the gothic horror novel so henry james with the turn of the screw is at play here um rebecca is at play here various novels uh about that i i think what sets this apart is even in the title haunting the haunting of hill house like this is a book about a haunted house yes and not necessarily about the people who lived there which is like something implicit in turn of the screw and even woman in black like Insofar as the ghosts, like the people haunting the house, are are the focus and not the house itself. So yes, much. yes, okay. and and that will become kind of more apparent as you talk about the characters. But th- like, there is a backstory to this house, and it is shrouded in mystery and and non specific storytelling. Okay. Um. So I just want to read the opening to this book. Because it does set the tone. And, and again, like the house is the first character you meet. So no live organism can continue for long to exist sanely under conditions of absolute reality. Even larks and katydids are supposed by some to dream. Hill House, not sane, stood by itself against its hills, holding darkness within. It had stood so for 80 years and might stand for 80 more. Within, walls continued upright, bricks met neatly, floors were firm, and doors were sensibly shut. Silence lay steadily against the wood and stone of Hill House, and whatever walked there walked alone. Mm. Yo, this this house is messed up. <laughs> <laughs> and everyone knows it's messed up. So the first like character you meet is this guy named Dr. John Montague. And Shakespeare references abound in this book, so like, if you if you're balking at John Montague, like, buckle up. Does that I mean does that harbor any particular meaning, or will you get to that as we as we talk about the book, like the uh, Montague thing in particular and the Shakespearean stuff in general? The Montague thing I I don't know is an explicit reference of any purpose. The other primary Shakespeare reference is a song from Twelfth Night. Um, that our other main character, Eleanor Vance, like sings to herself a bunch. Okay. Even though the novel never explicitly like acknowledges that it's referencing Shakespeare. Okay. Like most ghost hunters, I suppose, uh, Dr. Montague is an academic mm-hmm. of sorts who wants to like, he wants in on that paranormal investigation game, and he wants to publish like a really groundbreaking article about it, but he can't just come out and say that he's out hunting for ghosts or else he's gonna <laughs> like get in trouble. Okay. Like no one's gonna believe him just by saying he's out there to get ghosts. This is in the pre cable TV era. Yeah. Where this was not a pitch for a television show. It was like a reason to be shunned and not taken seriously by the academic community yes okay um he what is this uh he was a doctor of philosophy had taken his degree in anthropology because he thought it was the closest to the analysis of supernatural manifestations no wonder i had so much time to investigate haunted houses (laughs) what else could he be doing and this is direct this is direct from the book he was scrupulous about the use of his title because his investigations being so utterly unscientific he hoped to borrow an air of respectability even scholarly authority from his education (laughs) so he hears about hill house he ends up getting the money together to rent it for three months over the summer it's been talked about as being haunted or having psychic disturbances. And early on, the author tells you that uh, he has been looking for a place like Hill House all his life. And I, I mentioned this on the outset because I think the hauntings in this book and, and in general hauntings have a sense of like, if you're looking for it, it'll be there. If you're super skeptical and will never be haunted, like maybe you won't find anything. Okay. Um, but the degree to which some of these characters are like primed for haunting is important. So, Doctor Montague 
decides that he's going to like recruit some people. This sounds like the setup of a sci-fi movie, if I'm going to say anything. <laughs> he's going to recruit some people to stay with him for the summer. He doesn't have grad students willing to engage in paranormal studies, I suppose. Okay. So he says... Yeah, this would be the job for an intern yeah. in now times. Yeah, like, tw- like a bunch of intern 20-somethings with active Instagram feeds would like go with the like square professor to this haunted house. Man, but in- I can't even imagine a haunted house like Instagram story. I can't I couldn't do it. <laughs> it would be I, I think it would be more like a modern day Blair Witch thing. Which there's a new Blair Witch movie, Andrew. We should probably just go see it. Yeah, we should probably go see it. But yeah, you get you get like a a sepia toned yeah <laughs> picture of the house uh-huh. being like so scared right now hashtag slay hashtag goals or something <laughs> hashtag totally real hashtag spoke to my dead aunt mm-hmm. and uh he sends out a dozen letters to people that he is like researched creepily that he thinks have a predisposition to the paranormal okay and the purpose of the letters was says that like this visit is to observe and explore unsavory stories which have circulated about this house. He never uses the word haunted, but it's kind of like a dog whistle for people who are like into haunted stuff. Okay. And his letters have this like as the book calls it ambiguous dignity calculated to catch at the imagination of a quote very special sort of reader ambiguous dignity yeah so of course only two people respond (laughs) out of a dozen and uh part of the stipulation of his rental is that he has to have a member of the family that owns the house with him so the four people who end up staying at this house are dr montague uh, a young woman named theodora who passed some sort of psychic test where she could, like, if you held up 15 playing cards to me, Andrew, and I guessed, like, 12 of them right without any sort of knowledge, like, I'm a psychic. So invite me to your haunted house party. That's a pretty good accreditation test, actually. Yeah, it's it's not bad. Just going to night school for psychic <laughs> studies. <laughs> and you just gotta pass your accreditation exam. Uh and the the family member that has to accompany them is named Luke. He is the nephew, I think, of the Sanderson family who owns the house. Now does he think that the whole thing is silly or does he think that the house actually is haunted? I feel as like that his character could be one of two archetypes. He's ready for it to be haunted. He is okay. not there as your token skeptic. And and none of these four characters are there as your token skeptic. They're okay. all they're all ready to believe it sort of. They're maybe. all primed for ghosts. Yes. Um they're gaga for ghosts. Yeah. And Luke is kind of like, we're probably not going to talk about him as much as a deep dive on this book might, but like he's kind of a, seems like he might be a tool without enough explicit evidence. And he's just kind of like a pretty rich boy who's there for other characters to relate to. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't, I like, it seems like Jackson is interested in other things than Luke <laughs> is what I'll say. Okay. Uh, so we get Theo, who's the psychic girl, who's pretty confident about herself. She has a partner back home of undetermined gender. And I say that because her relationship with the main character, Eleanor Vance, like oscillates between this like sisterhood, friendship, cousin relationship, and like whether not that they are ever explicitly romantically linked. Um but that almost seems to be purposely taken off the table at times. Okay. Theo's interest in Luke, perhaps, who knows. Um, Eleanor, our main character, is introduced in the second chapter with this. Eleanor Vance was 32 years old when she came to Hill House. The only person in the world she genuinely hated, now that her mother was dead, was her sister. She disliked her brother-in-law and her five-year-old niece, and she had no friends. Hates her family, has no friends. Got it. What a way to introduce your main character. (laughs) Is 
And and the backstory that you find out is that Eleanor had been caring for her ailing mother for 11 years in such a way that she was basically a recluse. And the way that she engages with the other people in this book are is sort of childlike. Um, when she first meets Theo, they latch on to each other as like schoolgirls, even though Theo is clearly more like well-versed in the world than her. Mm-hmm. Um Later, when Eleanor has a conversation with Luke alone, it is noted that it's the first conversation she's had alone with, like, a boy, um, even though they're like in ever? there. Yeah. Dang. So, at when when I was Wait, reading... So it's like, how'd she, how'd she find this ad to respond to it in the first place? Like, was she... Is this shortly after her mother has died, and she's just, like, trying to get out on her own and become more of a... A member of society or like what's her what's her motivation what's her drive so she ended up on dr montague's list of dozen paranormal people mm-hmm. because when she was 12 years old um her father had not been dead for more than a month and showers of stones fell on their house without any warning without any purpose it's not like they came from nowhere and just like fell on their house intermittently for three wasn't days. Wasn't just a bunch of neighborhood kids. No. Okay. I will say that one of the spookiest moments of my life, aside from that closet story I told earlier, <laughs> was when my neighbor's stepdad threw pebbles at his window while we were playing a spooky video game. Whoa! Stepped. Like, was he doing yeah. that intentionally? Oh yeah, Ooh, Phil oh, was no. not messing around. That's like peak stepdad. Either you're trying a little too hard to bond with the stepkid, or you are actively trolling them. He was trolling us so hard. <laughs> Phil was doing a good job. Good job, stepdad Phil. So Eleanor gets on Doctor Montague's list, and she responds to the letter. I think because she's like desperate to get out of her life she's living on a cot in her sister's nursery as we said she hates her sister and she just needs to get out in the world and what she ends up doing is stealing the car that they co-own and like driving away to hill house for this summer vacay i suppose Mm -hmm. um which of course means that like when it's over, things are not going to be great for her because there's a whole scene where she's like, I got to take this car. And her sister's like, that's not going to happen. <laughs> and she takes it anyway. Nice. Um, Go joyride into and, a ghost house. And along the way, along this drive, you get a couple flashes of Eleanor, the sheltered person who is daydreaming as she goes lots of like long paragraphs with ellipses at the end where she like cuts herself off mid thought where as she's driving on this open road for the first time, she is envisioning herself as like someone way more important than she is almost Walter Mitty like, but like extra sad where she sees like a house on the side of the road and imagines that she lives there and has like an attendant and et cetera, et cetera. I did, like, no joke, though, the first time after I got my license that I drove myself to a place under my own power and went and did a thing and then drove home, I felt like a superhero. And I felt like everybody must have known that I did this. <laughs> like, I just I drove to the mall and got a haircut or something. Hey, guys, do you hear that Andrew drove himself to a haircut? Can yeah. you believe it? Can you believe they let him do it? Hear ye, hear ye. Andrew gets haircut. <laughs> come on, come on. Come on. <laughs> See the tall boy with the new haircut. Yeah. That's how it goes. <laughs> I don't normally get you on this show. That was, that was clutch. I appreciate no, it's it. No, it's good. It's good. It's good. Um, so she's on her way to Hill House, Eleanor is. And I, I bring this up because, again, the predilection to the supernatural elements of the house i think is really important i from what i've read i don't think shirley jackson is trying to lead us astray i think the haunting is supposed to be real in some way it's not all in in one person's head is it not real though because all the people are coming here like primed for a haunting that's very possible okay 
because like we who what perspective are we getting this from like do we are we getting this from eleanor's point of view are we getting it from montague are we getting it over somebody's shoulder like is the is whatever thing is narrating this book also prime for a haunting or is it pretending to be like a like an impartial observer or something the book for the first third of it pretends to be a pretty impartial observer it is a close third person narrator for a couple of pages mm-hmm. once the hauntings start we get pretty latched on to eleanor's point of view not in a first person way there's plenty of like Ele- uh like I am feeling this way, she thought, that happens later in the book. But it's very clear that, like, the source of information becomes almost exclusively Eleanor uh, as the book wears on. Okay. So she gets to the house. She's the first one there. And she meets the caretaker, Mr. Dudley, who has a wife, Mrs. Dudley. That's a good name for a caretaker. Pretty good. And she has to drive through this town where she's been instructed in her letter to, like, not talk about the house. Because everybody who lives in that town, yo, they know that crap is haunted. Like, people have been trying to live there and moving out three or four days later because it's too spooky. Mm -hmm. Um, They know it's messed up. So she gets there and she meets Dudley and then meets Mrs. Dudley. And Mrs. Dudley in particular is oddly formal. Like, she she repeats herself a lot and speaks in these really, like, brisk sentences that are, I think, she's it's, like, meant to imply that she's, like, guarding herself from the people staying in this evil house. Like, she's just, okay. like, trying to live her life. So these are some sentences that you hear her say literally throughout the book to the point where the characters laugh at her behind her back at how mannered she is. I set dinner on the dining room sideboard at six sharp. You can serve yourselves. I clear up in the morning. I have breakfast ready for you at nine. That's the way I agreed to do. I can't keep the rooms up the way you'd like, but there's no one else you could get that would help me. I don't wait on people. What I agreed to, it doesn't mean I wait on people. I don't stay after I set out dinner. Not after it begins to get dark. I leave before dark comes. We live over in the town, six miles away, so there won't be anyone around if you need help. We couldn't even hear you in the night. No one could. No one lives any nearer than the town. No one else will come any nearer than that. I don't want to stay at this house anymore, Andrew. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to the house. You'll be staying in the blue room. No one will hear you if you scream because everyone lives six miles away because this house is terrifying. Yeah, welcome to our spooky house. It's it's pretty bad. Have a good stay. So no no one can no one can hear you scream and you will all die alone. So, I'll have breakfast for you in the morning if you happen to live. And she she ends up repeating a lot of these sentences throughout the book in a way that you can tell that she's like she's got her stump speech and to stray from it means she has to acknowledge that the house is haunted. <laughs> and she really doesn't want to. So mm-hmm. when, as soon as Eleanor gets there, she's immediately like regretting it. This house she re- she calls it vile. She calls it diseased. She like and this is over-the-shoulder narration. Um, she meets Theo pretty quickly. They're, they, like, wander around and, and look at the house. They come back. Dr. Montague and Luke are there. You get this, like, speech about the origin of the house, which is not super spooky, except, like, the guy who built it, he had three wives that died, and then... His daughters, like, battled over ownership for the house, and some point after that, it started to get spooky. Uh, His daughter's, like, caretaker committed suicide, and then, uh, but her family ended up with the house, and now no one can, like, live in it or own it. Okay. Um, You get another snippet of this guy, Hugh McCrane, who... Or no, Hugh Crane, not Hugh McCrane, which is a very sillier name. Um, (laughs) Hugh Crane built it and like leaves this weird, they find this weird book that he like made for his daughter about like being pious and 
like being a good girl. It's kind of gross. And that's like the the only snippet of like backstory spookiness. But the the sisters who fight over the house have an echo in Eleanor and the the, the relationship she builds with uh, Theodora. Um, where they they start squabbling over Luke and they like they like each other a lot, but then they they fight all the time. And the book only takes place over a week. So the house starts messing with them like on day two. They kind of, they like, I don't know. I don't know why anyone would live, like stay here at all. This house sucks so bad. <laughs> and it's, it's like all of the angles. It's kind of like a Cthulhu house, Andrew, where like McCrane, oh crap, that's not his name. Crane built the house like with all the angles sort of weird without any real explanation um so that the doors always shut and they spend a day like walking around opening doors and trying to prop them open and opening drapes and they can't tell if it's the house closing them if like because the house is like built all awkwardly the doors close because of gravity or is Mrs. Dudley around when she said she's not around and she's closing everything? Mm-hmm. Like, they're very aware that something should happen to them while they're there. Which, to me, is just, like, the worst ever. <laughs> We're just sitting around and waiting for something to happen to and you? Multiple times they ask, like, I wonder when something's going to start happening. I wonder when we're going to get haunted. When I, does the blood come out of the when elevator? When does the haunting? Can you, imagine, can you imagine The Shining where, like, all the characters <laughs> had read that book or something? And that's definitely what's going on. And the husband is like, man, I don't know. Like, do I feel crazy or or is this just, like, something I ate? I don't know. Did you see any weird twins yet? No. I can't wait till I do. I saw one weird kid, but there wasn't a second one. Will I see a second one? <laughs> this just, This whole thing has me thinking about, like, the opening monologue to the real world, except it would be about... <laughs> Like, this is the true story of four strangers picked to live in a house and to work together and have their lives taped to find out what happens when people stop being polite and start getting haunted. That's definitely what's going on. (laughs) There is this whole, like, rigmarole where only the doctor, Dr. Montague, knows, like, the backstory of the house. And he tries to tell them, like, if I told you the story, you would all leave. And they're like, no, we came to, like, see if it's haunted. It's fine. Um, And the whole time, Eleanor is, like, really weird. Um, They're sitting around, and they're, like, starting to get to know each other after dinner. And there's this section where, like, uh, they're going to play bridge. And the doctor's like, oh, I think we should play bridge. And... This is, I'm just going to read this because I, I read this and I had no idea what was going on. Um, I'd intended to ask if you all played bridge, the doctor says. Of course, Eleanor said. And then the rest is not in quotes, Andrew. It's just thoughts. I play bridge, she thought. I used to have a cat named Dancer. I can swim. What? <laughs> and it happens a couple more times. And so, like, over the course of the middle of this book, you get the sense that Eleanor is hyper aware of her place in the like social order of these four people. And they all regard her with some oddness because she is this like 32 slash 34 year old, depending on whether or not she's lying um, person who was an 11 year recluse that like desperately needs this human connection, but also maybe just personally haunted. Like she's an odd bird and how she's haunted by her past already. Yes. So the hauntings happen on day two And the first one is like a no big deal, let's gloss over it, where they get up late the second, the first morning, and it's hard to navigate the house because there's so many crazy doors, and the doctor's like, hey, we left this door open for you so you could find your way to the dining room. We totally watched it swing shut. (laughs) And like, no one's, what? What? No one's upset. They're just like, all right, here we go. Let's do it. Everybody's almost like not just very nonchalant about yeah. these ghosts. Like they're just they're waiting to get haunted and 
to get haunted in a way where they will be impressed, this ghost is going to have to do something pretty cool. Like they're not, they're not impressed by a door that's closing by itself. Like that's no, bushly ghost. It stuff. is. And the doctor wants them to like write down everything that they see. So the end of the second night, there's this like good night moon sequence where they all, they're all going to bed and Eleanor and Theodora have adjoining rooms so that they could like hear each other if they yell or whatever, they share a bathroom. And, the first major haunting, uh, of course, as I'm reading this book, someone down the street from me starts like banging on their wall at this exact moment, and it is the pits. Because the first haunting <laughs> is like this frantic knocking on the door, and Eleanor's woken up from like a vision of her mother needing her, her sick mother needing her, like banging on the wall to get her attention. And, uh, it escalates to like a a knocking that comes down the door like bang, down the hallway banging on different doors and eventually like Eleanor and Theodora are in a room together like huddled as this door is being like wailed on by this spectral force and she describes it as being like tall enough that it's like banging at the top of the door which is not a th- like the door is big enough that like a human couldn't do that um, or at least certainly not either of the two women and, and the no one has heard from the men at all while this is happening. Um, and they yell at it and it stops and then it like comes back and it's pretty spooky. Like, I don't, I don't, we, huh. <laughs> so like I mentioned you before we started recording like terror versus horror is a yeah is a, break that break that down yeah. a bit for me because I, I was reading about this book and i was like it's not the book doesn't have a ghost so to speak like right like it doesn't it doesn't do what woman in black did where it has a specific ghost who has it out for the people who are in the house yeah no the house has a malignant force to it um that you experience mostly as terror. Now, I'm using these terms coming from the Gothic writer Anne Radcliffe, where terror is obscure and indeterminate, uh, and horror is a thing that you see that is like revulsive, like repulsive to you. Okay. Um, uh, Devandra Varma wrote in 1966, the difference between terror and horror is the difference between awful apprehension and sickening realization, between the smell of death and stumbling against a corpse. So neither are bad, depending on how you're using them as storytellers, but terror creates kind of that thing that we were talking about last week, where it's like you don't really know what it is, you just feel awful. Well, and it, it seems like there's a there's also a gap implied where you sense a thing and your mind makes it makes it scary. Like so you'd mentioned the smell of death versus versus stumbling on a corpse. Like if you smell death, you can probably imagine something if your brain is given enough time to run wild, you could imagine something that was worse than a corpse. Like it's it's the the implication versus the reality. Yes. And now I'm also now sending you images <laughs> from <laughs> Charles Darwin's The Expressions of the Emotions of in Man and Animals. <laughs> and the first one is t- is terror mm-hmm. and the second one is horror. I'll tweet these out for our listeners over this week. Um a wrinkle-headed man looks what would you call andrew what he's is like, he looking at he's like whoa what <laughs> and what is this? this first guy looks like like a character on game of thrones died and it was a surprise to yeah him. that's oh that's a good yeah okay what, yeah. The, what about the second guy and the second guy's like oh like <laughs> a character on game of thrones died and it had been a long time coming and it just came in a surprising way I also see the second guy as like the guy who yells they took our jobs. Like he has like a <laughs> he has a an outrage to him that is not explicitly supernatural. It's less surprise. I have and less more just reacting to the thing. I like the second guy less. 
Did you ever like in in Spanish class in high school? We had they they had this poster where uh, Jim Varney from the Ernest movies was doing all the emotions <laughs> on a poster, and this reminds me of that. Yeah. Okay. Cause, cause he made that movie called Ernest Scared Stupid. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. I mean, there were a lot more emotions than just scared, but that's sure. I'm just saying. So this first haunting in this book that we're talking about uh, is pretty spooky. And the next day, everyone's like a little excited about it. And they recognize, like, Do- Dr. Montague's like, is this part of, like, the spell that the house casts on you where you're, like, kind of excited to be weirded out? Um, They find two parts of the house that are particularly spooky one is a tower where the former like companion of the sister killed herself and to only eleanor it smells like a dead body okay the other spot is outside of the nursery there are two like smiling faces engraved or like on the wall or something and there's like a chill spot where not <laughs> now as a second i said that i thought of like chilling and relaxing but it's oh i thought of cool spot okay setting up mascot uh from the 90s it's definitely like a six inch patch of hallway that is inexplicably colder than anything else and later in the book they try to like measure it with a thermometer and it doesn't work but like you put your hand through it and you like can't grip anything because your hand is so cold Mm -hmm. um and other things start to happen so one they find writing on a hallway that says help Eleanor come home, which and later they find uh, Theodora's room covered in blood and like blood all over the place. And in the blood is written, help Eleanor come home. What's the punctuation like in that? None. Well, sense. OK. Yeah, there's no like so it's internal. not like help Eleanor come home. No, it's, it's just like, yeah, help Eleanor come home. Yes. Okay. And so. Eleanor start, is starting to get singled out by whatever's happening, and, and this is when, like, she as a narrator starts to get less reliable or at least less understandable. She starts behaving even more erratically. Um, I will, for the record, I think that's, like, my least favorite haunting, personally, is the, like, walk into a room and here's a bunch of stuff you didn't know was there. Like, mm-hmm. I don't like discovery hauntings of any of any kind. <laughs> discovery hauntings. Now is that does that apply to just when people move stuff around or would someone have to paint the walls of your room in blood for that to Probably the latter. Probably the latter. I did go into a bathroom at my workplace once and both of the sinks were running at full blast. And I can't think of a rational reason why that was taking place. Somebody's just pranking you. Somebody's trying to up your water bill, put you out of business. That's very possible. It's probably the evil oil tycoon (laughs) who wants to bulldoze your theater. Uh, The outcome of this bloody room is that Theodora and Eleanor start having a more, like, tempestuous relationship. Theodora, like, has some weird blaming going on towards Eleanor, which, of course, like, all the writing is about her. So you get this, like almost a trope or cliche at this point where it's like the person receiving the most attention might be like doing it to, mm-hmm. to get attention. Um, but the, the book doesn't seem to be saying that that's the case. Meanwhile, like the second after that bloody room incident, there's a bunch of internal monologue from Eleanor about how she wants to kill Theodora. And Yikes. like, she's just so mad at her and can't stand her. Is she projecting some of her, like some of her, antipathy toward her sister and family toward theodora yeah i think so and i think that's supposed to be magnified by the sister relationship that defines the haunting of the house like i think did i say antipathy antipathy right well you just did not just now you did antipathy if i had a silver dollar i'd give it to you thank you for saying it right (laughs) um there's another haunting where Eleanor like finds herself holding a hand like in a dream and she thinks it's Theodora's, but then she like wakes up and clearly it was not. Um, there's an, there's a couple other that they have along the way. 
the the knocking does come back and the, they get this coping mechanism where like you were saying earlier Andrew they seem unimpressed <laughs> and i think it's mostly them being like i'm terrified and need to uh insult this thing that's spooking me mm-hmm. rather to, than like, it, remove its power yeah rather than admit that it's spooky um and the the latter third of the book is this like sense that the house is taking over Eleanor or that she is succumbing to it. And again, like there isn't a, an explicit malignant spirit that's doing it. Like they they can't name it. They're not. There's nothing like that. Um, but the final haunting of the book, and this is after a bunch of stuff where the doctor's wife has shown up and is like doing more stereotypical medium nonsense in the house, where Eleanor is running around the house like at night knocking on people's doors and nobody's answering because they think it's the ghost. And then she like is communing with her dead mother or so she thinks Mm -hmm. um, and almost kills herself in the tower. And then the book ends with her um, actually kind of becoming one with the house in a way where, where you don't know. I think the ultimate question of the book is like, did they bring kind of what we were saying in the beginning? Like, did they bring the haunting with them, or was it here all along? And, and to a certain extent, because of the evidence of like people not being able to hack it in this house before, like something was going on there. But certainly, whatever was going on with Eleanor was either magnified by or brought to the house in such a way that was pretty bad for everyone sure so it's what's cool about this book is the scary stuff is really not explicit it's really like what is causing this you'll never find out who knows well and it just sounds like it's it's a lot of it is just brought by the people who have self-selected to be part of this house or like to live in this house sure so i mean some of the spooks like there is a there is no way to know where they came from or what caused them. Um, and it does not appear to be just perception. But I think that's what's cool. It's like there isn't a this this is happening because some guy killed a baby and now the baby's here haunting everyone. And now that it's a haunted baby. Oh, <laughs> that's different than a ghost. It's like that. It's like those <laughs> Roger Rabbit cartoons with baby baby Huey or whatever its name is, except baby Huey is a ghost. <laughs> And it's haunting Roger Rabbit for letting it die. Yeah, that would suck. Oh, I don't want to watch a movie where Roger Rabbit has to deal with ghosts. Like a ghost baby. Ghost baby, this fall on NBC. Coming coming to your local network, 8 p.m., 7 p.m. Central. <laughs> so why why does this book endure? This is the last thing, because we gotta we gotta wrap up. Yeah, but yeah. Like, why 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 do you think people like Stephen King, who is an expert in this genre. Why does he say this is one of the best works that there is in this genre? So I think first of all, it is the, the version of terror that Jackson can create. I think there is uh, a real solid, effective uh, layer of fear and anxiety in some of her writing that the book tricks you into being, into thinking it's going to be this kind of like, her prose is very reporter-like at first until it kind of sidles up over Eleanor's shoulder. Mm-hmm. So by the time that that starts happening and things start taking a turn for the weird, like you're used to it feeling real and the character interactions are really well realized. What's, What's interesting about Theodora and Eleanor's relationship is that even though it lasts only a week and even though there's ghosts happening all around it, like you can see a microcosm of these two women relating to each other in ways that neither of them are like emotionally equipped to deal with. Um, And that isn't sacrificed even as she's trying to tell this like ghost story. I think ultimately what Eleanor's up to is this like 
freedom from being defined by other people, like being defined by her mother, being defined by her relationship to Theo or Luke or even the doctor. And she's trying to escape her life, but ultimately that leads her to like being imprisoned in this house, this haunted house. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think you look at this book and you see the exact DNA of a bunch of scary movies that have come since that are nowhere near as emotionally deep as the book. Right. It's like movies that are interested in jump scares. Like, oh, God, I saw that Paranormal Activity movie. I hated it. Like, <laughs> and I, I know that that's a successful franchise for a bunch of different I even, reasons. I even hate seeing trailers for those movies. Sure. And the, and the book doesn't care about jump scares as much as it cares about the really creepy and scary things that, like, what it would be like to experience something like that is way freakier than actually just, like, the scary thing that happened. Mm-hmm. Um, because stuff isn't seen. Because you spend more time just in just out of someone's head, but, like, close enough to hear them think um, while a spooky thing is happening. That is way more interesting, I think, than a jump scare. Mm-hmm. But it does, like, the people who are good at jump scares are like leaning on the work that folks like Jackson have done. Sure, sure. Um yeah, go read this book, read it maybe during the day. Don't read it in a creaky house, like that's just a base like thing that will happen to you now if you read this book and you're not prepared to like deal with how noisy your house is. <laughs> um I'm getting to know, like, my house, our new house does have creaks and cricks, but I'm getting to know where they are and how to av- how to avoid them and minimize them. Sure. But sure. it doesn't do a lot of, like, creaking of its own volition, which, which is good for Spooktober because it means I can read spooky books <laughs> with impunity. Yeah. The number of times that there was, like, construction work going on on my street while I was reading this book and ghosts were knocking on doors was really not fair. It's really not fair. Uh, If this book has spooked you, or if you have some emotions from Charles Darwin's expression gallery uh, that you think we should have covered, (laughs) send them in to us. uh, We got to tweet that stuff out. I'm looking at this guy, (laughs) and even his hair is so expressive. Like The terror hair... Is all sweaty and matted down, like he's had more time to think about how how spooked he is. Yes, but the the horror hair is like sticking up; it's totally dry. Like, oh, this is a surprise to me. I love it so much. I love it; it's really good. Uh, you can send those into us at overduepod at gmail dot com, or hit us up on social media at facebook.com slash overduepod or twitter.com slash overduepod. I want to thank everybody who reached out to us. A bunch of folks came in after the uh, bonus episode for Hook hit the main feed on Saturday. So if you haven't listened to that, please go check that out. Uh, so thanks to Michael, Adam, Natalia, Philip, Jennifer, Corey, Tessa, Lucas, Sarah, Christina, Nice Kate, EVT, Emily, Rachel, Melissa, Graham, Grace, Carmen, Mr. J, Tysophene, Rain herself, Starfish Chick, Noel, uh, Noel, Nurbuswena, Yerbuswena, excuse me, Annika, Rob, Ellen, Rebecca, Catherine, Lindsay, Charlotte, Sean, Utpreksha, and Chris. Andrew, if folks want to learn more about the show and the rest of Spooktober, where should they go? They should go to OverduePodcast.com where we've got links to our iTunes page, to Stitcher, to Google Play, um, to our RSS feed, all the ways you can subscribe to the show. If you subs- if you subscribe on iTunes, do rate and review us. We ask for that every week, but we do it because it's really useful and it helps people find the show and it helps us feel good about ourselves because as creators we have like these fragile self-esteems that need to be constantly reinforced by praise so so please do keep that in mind um you can also find on our website amazon links to the books that we have read and are going to read you can find the full book list for spooktober which we have planned out Um, You can find our back episodes. You can find our Patreon page. You can find links to HeadGum, our podcast network, and Spreaker, our podcast host. Um, Is there anything else? I think that's mostly it. That's it. What are you reading for next week, Andrew? 
I am reading The Werewolf of Paris by Guy Endor. Not Guy and Fieri. Not Guy Fieri, which would be a different a different thing. It would be like the the deep fried <laughs> werewolf <laughs> sloppy joe of Paris by Guy Fieri. Um, and then we just posted our bonus episode about the movie Hook to mm-hmm. our feed mm-hmm. a couple days ago. So do listen to that. And I think we're going to be recording our bonus episode for Spooktober, which is the Give Yourself Give Yourself Goosebumps book, Beware of the Purple Peanut Butter. Going to be recording that soon, I think. So So be on the lookout for that. That's it. All right, guys. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back next Monday. And until then, try to be happy. That was a HeadGum Podcast.